0: And welcome to the second edition of the Rhino Report. Coming to you tonight, a uh, special guest, longtime good friend of mine, colleague. I have Greg Ulynchich here. Uh, Greg, welcome aboard. Hey,
1: thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it.
0: Yep. Uh, Greg, we go back a long way. Uh, for those of you, some of you listening, I know, do know Greg, but uh, he's been a longtime uh, private investigator here in Southern Illinois. He has taught the uh, private investigator course he taught at johnny logan for utah for over 20 years i believe right
1: about that
0: yep and uh he's also been a former police officer and we've talked about crime just casually for years and years and thought it'd be a good idea to have him on the show um something he's spent a lot of time studying and researching as of late uh that's interested in him or cases of people disappearing um cases where people just don't always seem to find the answer and ask the right questions a lot of unsolved cases out there and that's something we'll talk about tonight and i know something that interests you
1: yeah i mean some of these cases are are just bizarre i got interested in this watching uh and listening to uh a youtube telecast a missing 411 a guy named david palderis a former police officer started looking into some disappearances in the national force and and just was really curious about uh how they just simply just drop off the face of the earth.
0: And that's, you know, where it even happened. even recently uh, on the, on the Facebook page of the Rhino report, I shared a story out of Evansville recently, a uh, young lady by the name of Donita Wilkerson that has been missing now for about seven months, uh, was living with her brother, uh, said she was going out and would be right back and has literally just disappeared off the face of the earth. She had children, um, had a lot of family, and it's just very bizarre. Uh, I, when I understand, i read the story, I believe some love interests of hers, boyfriends, whatnot, were questioned by the police. But as of now, I don't think they've been officially listed as suspects. But uh, it's very odd to me how in this day and age, as hard as it would be to just to live off the grid, let alone just disappear like that. I really, I'm puzzled by that too, how that happens.
1: Well, I was involved with a case, by the, a gentleman by the name of Joel Moore, uh, who basically uh, left one evening, one Saturday, uh, was never seen again. Nobody ever found his car, uh, his bank accounts. Nobody touched those. Uh, he wasn't really a high risk person. He was just a regular guy who lived with his brother. And that's been about 10 years and no one has heard of, uh, heard of him since then. Yeah.
0: And. It is just odd. You know, I can understand years ago, decades ago, you know, things like this possibly being allowed to happen or not being allowed to happen, but just happening. But now, you know, it's very strange in the hyper information age we live in, the age of social media, the age of smartphones, where literally everybody's carrying a television studio around in their pockets, you know, in the olden days, you know, to capture something you know, you'd have to have a camera or a camcorder on you, but now all of us have this capability walking around with us. and it would be so easy to, you know spread and share information. But yet somehow these cases like that, and these people stay missing. And you know, as an investigator, I know you know it's very important just a lot of times to have the natural curiosity and to ask the right questions. And yet somehow a lot of these cases don't. And a lot of these questions don't get asked. And that's what we're going to, part of what we're going to focus on here on the first part of the show here tonight is how these questions don't get asked. And sometimes it's as simple as a question of where's the glass of water, which is what this episode is titled as. And Greg, I remember you were the first one to tell me about this story. So go ahead and tell our listeners what the story behind where the glass of water is.
1: Well, this was a story dealing with the death of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, They, after they, Set the scene, more or less. psychologists and people, and they called the police. And the first one that arrived was a was a, just a regular beat cap, cop, and he looked around, saw of course Marilyn there, dead, naked, uh, face down on the bed, and he looked at the the tablet or uh, table next to her, and he saw the the open pill bottles, and they were so they were empty, two or three bottles of different medications. And he looked and he asked one simple question. He asked, where's the glass of water? Yeah, I mean, uh, and that's a simple, simple question to to really ask. I mean, who 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 among us can drink, take 60 pills or even one pill without a glass of water?
0: And a lot of times these questions maybe don't get asked. You know, uh, recently I remember seeing, a, I saw a movie uh, on Sonny Liston, you know, the boxer, and that's another death that was a celebrity death that, you know, had mysterious circumstances. I mean, it was no secret that Liston had strong ties to the mob, but uh, you know, they ruled his case, a heroin overdose. And I don't know that there was ever any history of, you know, heroin abuse or anything in his past. Um, The wife that found the, you know, found his body said there was almost kind of like a stage scene. It just didn't look natural that he had just died of a heroin overdose, but you know, it was ruled that case closed. You know, again, nobody probably asked the simple questions, you know, like that. Where's the glass of water question?
1: Yeah, you, we're, we're not tinfoil wearing uh, conspiracy, <laughs> conspiracy theories. It's just simple questions you ask. And, and if you can't, if they can't answer the simple questions, you know, maybe the hard ones need to be asked also.
0: That's a very good point. And that is a point we do want to make. You know, we are not. Tinfoil hat uh, wearing nuts. Actually, my wife said she would take this equipment from me if uh, we ever got to that point. But you know, in all seriousness, when it when you deal with criminal justice, and Greg and I both have worked in the system for a long time in various uh, different jobs and, and degrees, and uh, you know, you have to be able to ask questions sometimes, and and to you know find out information, and and you have to have a natural curiosity of uh, of what's going on, and. Sometimes when something doesn't look right, like uh, you know, I know a case I saw one time on, you know, probably ID channel years ago of a woman that had her husband murdered on the beach and she tried to tell the police that they were robbed, and the guy made him, you know, get face down in the sand and, you know, end up killing her husband, but not her. And, you know, officer looks at her, okay, where's the sand on your clothes? And bingo, right there, her whole lie fell apart. But had he not even asked that simple question, who knows? I mean, you know, and you know, as yourself as an investigator, the longer a case goes unsolved. Of course, the harder it is going to be to get it solved.
1: Well, yeah, and and that was a good example of of just a police officer making a uh, a, a simple observation and asking the simple question, "How come you have no sand
0: on you?" Yeah, and that's uh that's something that we want. And there's a lot of cases, and really throughout, not just tonight, but we'll be talking about other cases uh like this that uh, are you know unsolved, unanswered for. Um, and by the way, if you do have any, if you are listening in the Evansville, Indiana area, and you do have any information on uh, Miss Wilkinson's whereabouts, you are encouraged to call the Evansville police at 812-436-7896.
1: Yeah, and we would like to know if uh, any cases in Southern Illinois, in the, in the tri-state area, that are unsolved. Let us know. We'll
0: talk about them. Exactly. And if you have, you know, if you're a family member of a victim of possibly one of these cases and you want to have your story told, contact us on our Facebook page, uh, email at rabidrhino at protonmail.com. We would absolutely love to have, you know, people on to talk about these kind of cases because both of us have been puzzled by a lot of cases. And we'll talk about them. Not like I said, not just tonight, but throughout the show. But, uh, you know, The questions need to be asked, and sometimes uh, they just seem very, uh, you know, okay with just hurrying up and closing the investigations. And, I mean, there are cases I know uh, in Southern Illinois uh, that have not been solved for decades.
1: Well, and we're not taking shots at the the local police. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, they have a large workload, and they try to work these cases the best they can do. And sometimes they just don't have the time to put in it especially a case that goes cold.
0: Yep. And that's what hopefully, you know, over time, you know, maybe some more information can come out, you know, through shows like this and, you know, information can come forward. I know I have, you know, read of stories where uh, podcasts and, you know, shows have led to information coming forward that has helped solve cases that are very long and not, you know, that have gone cold. So uh, we want to look into, all these types of things, how this happens and how cases like this, you know, and how people go missing and, and in this day and age, because it's just so difficult to, and, you know, unfortunately a lot of times when these people have been missing for a while, when they are found, oftentimes it's not good news. And it's very easy for, you know, people to fall victim to a lot of things these days, which is really the next segment that we're talking about tonight. Um, is about victimology. Um, if you've had me in class and you're listening for, if you've been in one of the classes I've taught, you know, we have talked about that and, uh, you know, how people's behavior and activities lead them to being victims of crime.
1: Yeah, also, it's, it's another term is victim-precipitated crime. And that's something that's r- rarely looked at. It's how the victim actually helps the criminal or their actions, their actions actually... Help the, help the crime taking place. Um, again, I'm, I am I think you've, I know this, you know this, Ryan, that if you want to save yourself from being a victim of a violent crime or any type of violence, a good way to do it is simply just stay out of bars.
0: Yep, I was going to say that. Um, that's a famous quote I remember from uh, Lieutenant Joe Kenda. I know those of you that have the ID channel probably remember his show, uh, he was a retired detective from Colorado Springs. I think he said he solved over 400 homicides, uh, in that area and, you know, investigated, you know, tons of cases like that. And I remember him saying that on the episode. he said, if you want to avoid being the victim of a violent crime, stay out of bars late at night. And, you know, I mean, he's right. A lot of times when you do hear of things like this happening, unfortunately, these are the places and the scenarios where they, uh, do indeed end up happening. And, That routine activities theory, you know, that is part of some people's routine, unfortunately, going to places like that and making themselves more prone to being a victim. And if you've had me in class again for, you know, we've covered routine activities theory, and there are three points to that, that their theory says that makes for a crime to happen. One is a motivated offender. Well, we all know we have plenty of those out there. Uh, Number two, a suitable target And three, simply the absence of a capable guardian, someone to protect the person or property that has been targeted. Uh, You can't really do much about number one because you never know who out there is going to be motivated to do what. But the other two, I think, are really a lot more in our control that we can do to avoid being a victim. You know, number two, suitable target. Simply don't make yourself an easy target. And
1: Ryan, Ryan, a lot of that's uh, situational, what's called situational awareness. Yes. Uh, look, look, look before you leave. Before you, if you go to Kroger's or Walmart and you see somebody who looks like a criminal, somebody that doesn't look all that right, don't park next to them. You know, park park down the road or walk away from them. I mean, you have to be aware of your surroundings. Don't be playing on your cell phone, you know, looking at messages because somebody can easily just attack you and grab you and take you away.
0: And uh, that happens, unfortunately, all the time. And, uh, you know, I always say, you know, don't get in a car, you know, take a chance and run. I know the odds if you get in that car are just off the scales that you are most likely going to die.
1: Yeah. And even if they have a gun, I mean, I actually remember a case long, long time ago and in a firearms class where they talked about actually three uh, bad guys and three cops. They were in a tavern, they pulled guns, and that's when they had the old six shooters. And they each, each of those men emptied their guns at about a three foot range, and none of them were shot. I mean, the adrenaline flows. It's very difficult to, to, uh, to, uh, actually, uh, hit somebody at a moving target yeah especially when uh, in a situation where adrenaline's flowing and everybody and the guy's running
0: away and you're excited they're excited uh it's much harder than it looks yeah and i it's not the movies yep and i've always said that to my wife and friends and people you know yeah just don't get in the car you do uh you know the odds are very much against you not coming out of that alive or in very good shape and you know, uh, don't travel alone, you know, don't go, uh, you know, don't go out alone late at night. I mean, there's just so many things people do unfortunately that make them a target. And, uh, you know, like I said, they are looking for that. The motivated offender again, we can't do anything about that. We don't know who's out there motivated by what, but if you are seen as a suitable target, that is enough to motivate that offender.
1: Of course, motive is another episode.
0: Yes. <laughs> motive is definitely uh something we will be talking about in the future, but, um, The suitable target and, of course, the absence of a capable guardian. You know, well, there's a lot of ways you can make yourself capable. Um, All 50 states now have concealed carry. I know we were the last to get it, and unfortunately, it took a federal court order to get Illinois on board on that. But there are ways to that. If you do not want to do that, if you're not really, you know, much experience with firearms or you're not crazy about owning one, that's fine. Uh, Learn a martial art. I know uh, Greg and I have trained together in some martial arts. Uh, Greg is teaching some right now. Uh, You know, you can learn a martial art. You can carry pepper spray, a stun gun, a baton. There's a lot of ways you can protect yourself and not make yourself, uh, you know, a lack of a capable guardian.
1: Yeah, you want to take that effort to learn uh, suitable self-defense. There was a story where an old master, a student asked an old master, he said, uh, why do we train so hard? And you tell us to walk away. And the old master thought about it and he said, it's rather, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war, which basically it takes time to learn self-defense and you can't, it, it, and if you do that, you have that always have that knowledge. Uh, I mean,
0: no, sorry. Oh, you're, Yeah. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. And it does take time, but uh, it's time well spent. Exactly. It's an investment. And that's what I think you have to, you know, you have to consider. And I mean, you have to find what works for you. And I know you and I've had a lot of conversations about this, that Bruce Lee, Jeet Kune Do style, you know, maybe like I said a minute ago, maybe guns aren't your thing. Okay. Learn a martial art. Maybe you don't have time to learn a martial art, get a concealed carry, get pepper spray, get a baton, you know, travel in, you know, with friends, uh, you know, a lot of things you can do, you know, don't make yourself vulnerable, you know, don't flash cash in bars. I mean, how many stories have you heard about that people being robbed on the parking lot? You know, they got a big settlement or big income tax return and they're just, you know, flashing cash all over the bar, not paying attention to what they're doing. And, you know, two o'clock in the morning, they stagger out to the car drunk on the parking lot and they get jumped and robbed.
1: Well, that's a part of uh, victimology and victim precipitated crimes. Don't do that stuff.
0: And it really is kind of that simple, you know, and, uh, but like I said, yeah, be aware of your surroundings, which I'm going to talk about sometimes where that's not so easy here in just a second, but it is be aware of your surroundings again, motivated offender. You can't do anything about what motivates some of these criminals, but you don't have to make yourself a suitable target and you can make yourself more than capable of a guardian of yourself, your family, your property, whatever it takes.
1: Well, I'll use this example. Let's think of about say a group of lions on the savannah in Africa. They don't look for the strongest antelope for dinner. They look for the weakest. You have to present yourself. If you're, you know, even if you're not a big guy or this, stand up stand up straight. Walk with confidence. Walk with confidence. You know, that might be the difference. They're looking for people who are weak, not people who are strong.
0: Yes. Very good point. Now, you can't always tell by looking the dangers that are out there. And this is the next segment of our show here where we're going to talk about. Uh, and I think we'll probably make this a regular part of the show. I really think we should. Um, and we'll talk about uh, some of our theories that Greg and I put together talking about crime and criminology. But you can't always tell on uh, at first glance who can be a dangerous criminal and not. But most times, and Greg and I will agree on this, That There are warning signs along the way, especially of these serial killers. Now, I will say one case we're never going to discuss on this show is Ted Bundy. I am sick of Ted Bundy. I'm sick of hearing about his story. There are so many other criminal cases that people need to be aware of, and they're not. And one of which, the first one I'm going to talk about to show how things aren't always what they seem, is the case of Albert Fish. Now, some of you may know who I'm talking about, but I would dare say a lot of you listening probably don't know anything about him. I know uh, the criminal justice classes I teach; very few students are actually aware of him. They know Bundy, they know you know like Gacy and uh, some of the you know high profile ones, but very few know him. And you know it could be because this you know is largely about a hundred years ago. Some of the things that he did, but um, Albert Fish was born. Uh, into a family that had a long history of mental illness, which that's going to be something we'll touch base on throughout the show, really at any time. Uh, You know, Greg and I are also big components of uh, biological theories. I know I learned a lot of these at the uh, university of Cincinnati when I was working on my master's and these are uh, you know, theories that, you know, not only physical traits we inherit and a lot of you are probably like me and Greg, you've got family members that have a history of diabetes, heart disease, all that kind of thing. Well, If you really look at it on the surface, a lot of criminals have this in their backgrounds as well, you know, and Albert Fish had this history in his family. His dad was 43 years older than his mother. Um, After his father died, his mother placed him in an orphanage. He was physically abused there, but then he started to actually enjoy the pain, which early warning sign, you know, not something that's normal for a kid, but unfortunately in a busy, crowded, you know, orphanage, probably not something that got any notice. Um, then he began sexually promiscuous behavior and, uh, even began eating and eating his own feces, drinking his urine as a young teen here, basically. So early on some warning signs, somebody probably should have taken note of, but, uh, nobody did. Um, he began his early work as a male prostitute, um, started sexually abusing, uh, children. Um, he, uh, became obsessed with sexual mutilation began inserting uh pins things like that into his pelvic area
1: Yeah
0: that got me And uh yeah exactly me too first time I heard that case that was uh yep uh into you know all kinds of his sexual organs and things just very uncomfortable places he uh very much enjoyed uh sexual pain um did a short stint in prison for some uh grand larceny burglary things like that um And when he got out he did his first time where he actually uh captured and tortured a man, but he actually let him go and live, but th- he never heard from that situation again. Um, his wife left him at this time, which was, again, you heard about pre-crime stressors. This is one here. He was left with six kids to raise on his own. Not a real stable guy to begin with. So uh, amazingly, though, somehow, there's no history of his kids being abused or neglected, which is a really strange thing, but we'll get to that here in a little bit. But um, You know, he really started getting uh, more violent. He began kidnapping children. He told police after he was later captured, he would often kidnap and abuse uh, kids that were handicapped, black, you know, someone he might feel that uh, the police would not, at that time, spend a lot of time looking at. This is in the early 20th century, so, you know, things were a lot different back then. And, uh, you know, he started sending obscene letters to women in personal ads, was sent to Bellevue Hospital, which is a famous mental institution in New York. Probably should have been uh, better looked into there, but nonetheless, he was later looked out and then committed the most famous, or I should say heinous act that he actually is known for, and that was the murder of Grace Budd. This was a young lady that uh, he met her family by posting a fake ad that he was hiring farm help. He went to uh, the home saw the boy that he, the teenage boy that he was planning on kidnapping and molesting and torturing. And then he figured that might be too much of a challenge. Again, that suitable target. He saw he didn't meet the suitable target. So he unfortunately chose the young girl, uh, made, made up a story to the family about taking her to his niece's birthday party. He relented or finally pushed and pushed. They finally relented and just, uh, you know, they let him go or let her go with him. And, uh, she was never seen again. He took her to an old farmhouse, uh, sexually abused her, uh, ended up killing her and actually cooking her and eating her. I mean, he was a cannibal. He did some, uh, I mean, you know, he was later evaluated, uh, after he was kidnapped. I mean, after he was captured and charged for this crime. And, you know, it was said that he had more abnormalities than probably any killer in American history. I mean, he killed, He did, uh, you know, he was a serial child molester. He was a cannibal. I mean, you know, he had all kinds of religious uh, fanaticism, hallucinations, you know, thought he was the Messiah, and just on and on. Uh, We did not have probably anybody that was that messed up. And uh, he's killed at least three children on record, although he's suspected of killing many more. But I've always been amazed, you know, one, why we don't know that much about his case. It could be because he was really one of the early – serial killers basically in american history but for some reason his case it's not in any of the textbooks in the classes i've taught and it's really hard for me to understand why it doesn't get more than it does
1: well ryan that's an interesting question you brought up here is uh we first think about someone like fish you want to you want to execute him you want to be done with him but should we keep these people and study them
0: And I think that is a good point. I would say now that's probably what would happen, Um, you know, because now New York doesn't, you know, execute. I think they still have a death penalty on the books, but I don't think they execute because he was executed in, I think, the state of New York. But um, that is a good point. You know, somebody with that many abnormalities needs to be studied.
1: Well, I mean, uh, the groundbreaking work done in behavioral profiling, serial killers, such people like Fish and what motivates them was done by Robert Ressler. And a guy named John Douglas, uh, they, they really started the uh, the FBI behavioral profiling. Um, and it's very interesting how Douglas actually started this when he, he in his book um, "Whoever Fights Monsters." He's he, when he was a young FBI agent. They used to do these roundups. J Edgar Hoover was the was the uh, director, and they'd round up these guys for like gambling certain vice crimes just to get publicity. And these guys knew that basically it was just part of doing business. And he was, he had this guy, he arrested, who was in the passenger side with him and they were just talking. And this guy, you know, they were just talking about different things. And John asked him, he said, you know, you seem like a real smart guy. I mean, you could be doing anything. Why do you gamble? And it had to be, happened to be raining that day. And this guy, man, looks up at the windshield and says, John, still those two drops of rain right there. Water. I bet you the one on the right gets gets to the bottom before the one on the left. He said, we don't need horses, cars, cards, roulette. We don't need none of this. It's not it's not what we do. It's who we are.
0: Very good point. And. It's like a famous quote from another serial killer I'll talk about on another episode. H.H. Holmes, who was considered the first serial killer in American history, said, I'm paraphrasing here, but, uh, you know, I was born with the devil inside me, and I can no longer stop killing than a poet can stop writing poetry. And wasn't he an
1: Illinois boy, too?
0: I believe he did some time (laughs) in Chicago. Yep. Uh, Another, you know, uh, bad mark on that town, but that could be a whole episode, I guess, too. If you're listening to Chicago, no offense, but... uh, but, uh, but you know, Fish on the surface, and if you'll see on the Facebook page, I'm going to share a story about this, was a little meek, feeble old man. He wasn't something you'd look at to think that he could be extremely dangerous. Now, the, the fender Greg's going to talk about here is a different story, but yet along the way, despite all the warning signs, a lot of people dropped the ball. And unfortunately, just like in Fish's case, a lot of people suffered. And
1: Yeah, a, a direct opposite of Fish. Um, a guy named Ed Kemper, um, he was in California. Uh, like a lot of these offenders, he had a, a domineering mother, a father who was basically out of the picture. And as he grew, started reaching puberty, 12 or 13, he started growing big. He eventually was six foot eight. And his mother was, was frightened of him. So at 12 and 13, she locked him in the basement at night. Now, I don't know about you, Ryan, but, you know, that's... That would have creeped me out. Yeah, you know what kind of demons that yeah. basically visited this this uh, young boy. Well, the mother gave up on him, and he uh, lived with his uh, grandparents until one day he took a twenty-two and killed them both. Um, He was put in juvenile, and around eight, well, 18, 19... I think the the his offense was like 16, 15, 16. His mother petitioned the court to get him out. Now his mother worked in a in a college. Yeah. In a university yeah. and college. Yeah. And he came back and lived with uh, with her. And he became a friend of law enforcement, which is one of the factors that these serial killers do. Yes. They like domination, manipulation, and control. Yes. And, you know, a lot of police officers do that. Um, he became friends with him. He, you know, hung out with Tried them. to
0: even be one, I think. Yes. Did he, but he couldn't pass some of the tests or, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, and he, uh, so he ev- eventually started his killing ways. He'd pick up co-eds, kill them, mutilate them. Uh, one part of the story that is, that that's another episode, is that he was getting a value, his court order evaluation by a psychologist. And the the uh, psychologist basically said, oh, he's doing well, doing great. And while he was doing this interview, he had two dead co-eds yep. in his trunk. Another thing about Kemper who makes him exceptional, he was he had a genius IQ. Yes. Um, he killed, I don't know, eight, nine co-eds until finally he killed the real person he always wanted to kill, which was his mother. In fact... He tried. He killed her. He beheaded her. He had sex with her head, and tried to th- dump some of the waste, or voice box and stuff, down the, the garbage disposal. And it spit it back up. Spit it back up into his face. And his quote was, "The bitch is still bitching at me even after she's dead." And when he basically took off, and he had to call the local police and said, "I am the co-ed killer," which they called, they called Ed Kemper.